So, you know, we've been in this series for a while, and I thought at the beginning of this series that, you know, what I would do is I would just race through Matthew to get to Easter on Easter, to get to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. I thought I would just race through Matthew and do that. In fact, I told you I was going to do that. And then the more I dug into Matthew, the more I realized this is a passage and a message and a book that we need to study more in depth. And so we've dug into it a little bit. And, and so then the question is, well, what do I do for Easter Sunday? Do I just skip over all the other stuff in Matthew, jump to Easter, tell an Easter story, and then come back? Do I jump outside of Matthew and go to Luke or something and do an Easter story from over there so we can stay in continuity with with Matthew? And I thought that Easter tells us something so important about the story of Matthew as a whole. Because remember, when Matthew is writing, he is writing after the resurrection happened. He is writing after Jesus has died. And so everything that Matthew writes comes from a perspective of, remember, this is the guy that I'm going to tell you died. Remember, this is the guy that I'm going to tell you rose again from the dead. Remember, this is the guy that you have heard. Because listen, the people who are reading the book of Matthew are people who have already heard the story of the resurrection. Have you ever thought about that? No one is reading the book of Matthew completely surprised by the ending. Because back in the day when it was written, someone would say to them, hey, do you want to read this really good book that has a surprise ending? No, no one would say that. No one is going to say, hey, there's a, here's this book with a big cliffhanger. What they'll say is, there's a dude who rose from the dead. And someone's like, what? Yeah, this book talks about it. So, you know, spoiler alert, he comes back. But but anyway, so this story is one that I think is incredibly important to every passage in Matthew. But the passage we look at today, I think, is incredibly appropriate. Remember that Jesus is not the king we expected. He's not the king we wanted. We love to have a king who's strong and powerful and who can fight our battles for us. And Jesus seems like he's not going to be that. Let me take you again to what we call Good Friday. I'll put it up on the screen here. In Matthew chapter 27, it says this. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Let's keep going. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. This is is the thing, okay? You have to get this picture. That the thing the soldiers are doing to Jesus is the thing all of us would do to a king like that. A king who lets himself be captured. A king who lets himself be railroaded by the supposed powers that be. A king like that is a king to be mocked. And so the soldiers mock him. Oh, you think you're the king, do you? Well, look at us treating you like such a king. Keep going. After they'd mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. And then when Jesus is hanging on the cross, all the crowds say, he saved others. But he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. This is the king we want. We want a king who conquers things. We don't want a king who gives in. We don't want a king 
who won't even save himself. Because frankly, if the king won't even save himself, how can I trust him to save me? Of course, in this case, he's dead, so he can't save us at all, right? That's the way they were all thinking. That's the way everyone was thinking at that time. If Jesus dies, then he's no good to us as a savior. But more than that, we would say the same thing about any king. If the king is weak, what good is he to us as a savior? Well, today, I want to share with you what I think is the most important passage, section, thought, idea from the entirety of Scripture, from the entirety of human history. And it is this. The only way that I can be saved is by following a king like Jesus, by following Jesus. The only way. We think we need someone strong on our side. What we need is someone who died. Now, let me walk you through this a little bit. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 7. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. Okay, so Matthew 7, that's 20 chapters away from when Jesus dies, okay? And, and 21 chapters away from the victorious end of the story. So why are we spending time in Matthew 7? Well, I'll tell you, in Matthew chapter 7, we get a story that a lot of you are familiar with. But perhaps today you'll get to see it in a new light because today we get to see the story of how much you desperately need to follow Jesus. Let's start in verse 24. It says, therefore, okay, we can't go any farther. We have to find out what the therefore is there for. You know, you've heard pastors say this before. It's a cliche. We all do it, but it's still important. Let's go backwards, okay? Let's skip backwards to verse 21. And I'll show you what shows up there. In verse 21, it says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Well, first of all, Jesus is calling himself Lord. And he says, Not everyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Sometimes people think that Jesus never actually claimed to be God in the flesh. Sometimes people think, critics primarily, think that Jesus never thought of himself as this supremely divine being. And yet here in chapter seven, he says, you ain't getting into heaven lest I say so. He says, if I don't know you, you're out. Sure, you need to follow everything that God the Father says, but I'm the one who decides if you did. Jesus is there saying to all the people, you don't get into heaven unless he says okay. So Jesus is claiming exclusivity really early on. The reason that's important is that he is now about to tell us why he said that. Therefore, right? He just said he is the only way to heaven, so now here's what you need to know. Therefore, verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. 
Perhaps you've heard this story before. You've heard Jesus talk about this, or maybe you read it, or maybe you saw it if you're younger. When you were younger, you, maybe you saw it in a flannel graph or some sort of other diorama or diagram in Sunday school or some other class situation. I remember as a little kid hearing the story about the wise and the foolish builders, and, and it was in cartoon form in all sorts of places, but maybe today it's just more relatable as the three little pigs. Did you know that Jesus told the story of the three little pigs first? The one who builds a solid house is the one whose house stands up. The one who builds the house out of straw or sticks or anything else that isn't sturdy, that's the one that falls down. And so we, you know, we've added an extra pig instead of just a wise and a foolish builder. We now have three pigs. But you probably didn't know Jesus came up with the idea first. There's a guy who does what's right and his house is strong. There's a guy who doesn't do what's right And his house is weak and it falls with a great crash. There are a couple things in this story that I want to highlight for you. Things that I think make a lot of sense once you understand the story of Easter. But hold on for just a moment. The first thing you need to know from this story is that storms will come. You notice, of course, there are two people in the story. There's a wise and there's a foolish person in the story. However, the same storm hits both, right? The the wise builder doesn't avoid the storm. He doesn't get out of the storm. The wise builder is experiencing the same storm as the foolish builder. A lot of times we get get ourselves into a, a mental way of thinking that says something like this. If I do what's right, then I deserve to be spared from the hardship of life. Maybe you've never phrased it that way in your mind or in your heart, but I'm sure when the trouble comes, you've thought the question, why God? Why did you let this happen? Why did you let this come into my life? Why am I the one who has to deal with this? Haven't I been following you all along? I remember a number of years ago, there was a family in our church that had gone through a tragedy, a a terrible situation. And I remember going over to their house the day I found out the day they found out. And we're sitting there in their living room and one of the questions was, but haven't we been doing everything right? I mean, we've been doing everything we were supposed to. I remember when I was a kid, I thought that what this passage meant was, all you need to do is obey the Bible perfectly and if you obey the Bible perfectly, then you're never gonna have any problems. Because naively, I ignored the fact of the storm hitting both people. I just assumed the Bible is trying to tell us you do the right thing and life is wonderful. Now, the truth of the matter is we know that's a lie. Uh, for, For instance, this last year is just proof that the storms hit everyone. In 2020, I remember thinking to myself, this is the worst year ever. And that was like in March. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that was, that was a year ago. More, more than a year ago, I was thinking to myself, wow, I thought 2019 was bad. 
2020 is, this is bad. Wow, we got to find a way to get this better. Do you remember at the beginning of March last year when you were hearing the rumors of a disease that was coming around the world that had hit Italy and they were having all this trouble and, you know, in, in China they were hopefully getting a handle on it? Do you remember back then when the government said what we need you to do is lock down for two weeks? Do you remember that? For 14 days what we're going to do is we're going to lock down. No one's going to go anywhere and we're just going to, we're just going to starve out this virus. You know, we're just going to make sure no one passes the virus in our country. Two weeks. All you have to do is two weeks. Just put up with this thing for two weeks. That was like 56 weeks ago. I'm talking this last year, if it, not, just, not just the pandemic, okay? My heart was broken time and time and time again this last year. People in our church who experienced tragic loss of life from people far too young. People in my family who've gone through a tragic loss of life. Relatives who have passed away surprisingly. This last year, I've been a part of more funerals than I think I've ever been a part of, and I still don't personally know anyone who died from COVID. I've just experienced lots of other funerals. I've, I've done a few of them. This last year, my heart was broken time and time again over the loss of life. My heart was broken time and time again over the rampant um, fraudulence in our leadership. Just wherever you look, you find another leader telling another lie. Wherever you look, you find another leader without any personal integrity. And my heart was broken by all of that. My heart was broken by people in the church that I loved who decided during this last year that they were going to depart from our fellowship. My heart was broken time and time and time again. Racial injustice, moral problems in our leadership, all this stuff. And I'm not alone. You've been through it all. You've been through this storm. There's just one thing I feel really needs to be said. This is not the worst year of your life. Because there's going to be a different year in the future where the storm hits closer to home. This year that we just came through even though to me it feels like the worst year of my life. And I can say for darn sure it has been so far to this point the worst year of my life. However, storms come. And if I experience this storm when I'm mid-40s, by the time I reach my own end of life, I am certain I will have gone through other storms. And so will you. And so will all of us. Jesus tells a story, and both the wise and the foolish builder go through a storm. Enough to tear a house down. The question is, will you and I be strong enough? Will, be able, will we be able to handle whatever the next storm is? And Jesus gives us something that we can do. In fact, what Jesus says here is that we can prepare for the next storm by doing what he says. We can prepare by doing what Jesus says. Now, 
remember, I'm not saying that you can avoid. Prepare is a different word from avoid. If you're preparing for a hard time, if you're preparing for a storm, then you are preparing for the storm to actually come. If you are preparing to avoid the storm, then you're not preparing for the storm. If you're trying to get out of the storm, then you're not ready for the storm. There's a big difference. And Jesus says, no, what I want you to do is follow my words so that you can be ready, so that you can be prepared for when the storm comes. All those people said, but we've obeyed you, Jesus. And Jesus said, but I didn't know you. That's the biggest storm at the end when we are judged. But even before then, we all have this tendency. Now, One of the things that I find interesting when it comes to this passage is, like I said, when I was a kid, I thought this passage just basically meant do everything Jesus ever said and do all the other things in the Bible too. Because if you do all the things that Jesus ever said and all the other things in the Bible too, then you've got all your ground covered. And so then this boils down to a really long checklist, a really long checklist of what does it mean for me to do the things that Jesus says to do. And and maybe you've been there too. Maybe you've been in that place where you create for yourself a mental checklist of all the different things that you need to do. When I was younger in high school, I had my driver's license for just about a year and my mom had told me, Jeff, I really want you to drive the speed limit. And so I was feeling guilty one day coming from a youth program and um, I looked at my speedometer and my speedometer said 60 and the sign on the side of the road said 50. And so my mom had told me earlier that day, I need you to drive the speed limit. So I'm like, okay, I will go ahead and submit to my mom and obey the speed limit and obey my mom. And so I reduced my speed to about 53. Um, just, you know, it was, it was, it's hard to go all the way down to, you know, the speed limit number sometimes. And so I, I was, I was 16 and a half or something, 17. And, and so I'd taken it all the way down to 53. I'm on Bear Valley Road. It's at nighttime. And just as I'm getting up to 7th Avenue, where 7th Avenue and Bear Valley Road uh, cross each other. I'm on Bear Valley Road and I hit, the, the light is green. It's been green for a significant amount of time. It's at night. And so as I'm entering the intersection, I see from the right-hand side of my peripheral vision, a red small car. I thought at the time it was a Triumph. The police later told me it was a Carmen Ghia, but it's coming and it's not slowing down. And it's entering the intersection as I'm entering the intersection. I'm young and very inexperienced at the drive thing, but I, and I have reduced my speed even, but because I've reduced, I blame my mom, because I've reduced my speed, now we're meeting at the same point in time at that intersection. And so I'm freaking. And so I yank the wheel to the left so that I can avoid this car that's coming right at me. And so I yank the wheel to the left problem. The cars on the other side of the street are still coming. And they're still coming forward, but that's not the actual problem. The actual problem is there's a concrete median in between my side of the street and the other side of the street. And so as I'm in the middle of the intersection, I'm now headed directly towards the concrete median with cars on the other side. And so I realize I need to avoid that too. And so I yank the wheel to the other side. I yank the wheel to my right. And then that's when I lost control of the vehicle. The back wheels begin to lose, they, they fishtail out, they spin around, and I'm watching the whole thing happen as I slide sideways into a glass vestibule that is a bus stop on the side of the road. 
demolish the front end of the bus stop and the left side of the car and the back axle of my dad's favorite car. And um, at that moment, I was thinking, what in the world? It was only later that I learned about a principle called overcorrection. Are you, are you familiar with this? When, when you go too far in one direction, sometimes you lose control and it all just flies out of control. I think that same kind of mentality happens here. We feel like we can be in control of the storms around us, the storms in our life. We feel like we can be in control if we just check off all the boxes and do all the things. And Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say you can control the storm. He doesn't say you can avoid the storm. He says that if you do what he says, you can survive the storm. See, the question isn't how many of Jesus' list items have you kept. The question is, what did Jesus actually say? If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that we've been covering a section that in my Bible is all read because it's just Jesus talking. And you know if you've been paying attention over the last couple of weeks that Jesus, when he gives us what he wants us to do, his list is really pretty interesting. Jesus' checklist, look at verse 24 again. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words. Now, let's just be clear. Maybe Jesus is talking about all the words he will ever speak. But I think he's probably talking about the ones he just spoke. And so you go back to the beginning of Matthew 5 and 6 and 7. And you say, what are the things Jesus actually said? Well, do you remember the Beatitudes? Did he give you a list of do's and don'ts? No. In the first of chapter 5, he just told you that there are some people who view themselves as poor and they're the ones that God loves. There's some people who sacrifice themselves for the sake of others and those are the ones that God supports. You go a little farther in salt and light, Jesus says, I want you to be salt and light to the rest of the world. You go a little farther and Jesus says, yeah, there are all kinds of laws that you can find loopholes in, but I'm going to tell you, you should never be satisfied with a loophole. You should always be a person who is pursuing the higher level of righteousness. And then you go a little farther and he says, and by the way, there are lots of people around you and you're going to try to get approval from them, but you shouldn't get approval from them. You should just trust God in the midst of all this stuff. What Jesus says is not a list of do's and don'ts. In fact, you can summarize everything he says in just three simple phrases from all of this section that we've been in. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. From Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, there are three simple phrases. Here they are. Jesus says, trust God. Number two, he says, serve others. And number three, he says, judge yourselves first. Judge yourself first. I just want you to think about those three things for the moment. What difference would they make in your life during a storm? What difference would they make in your life during this last storm? If we had truly been living out these three things, what would it have looked like in 2020? If we had been trusting God, Completely. If we had built our lives on trusting God, then when a pandemic comes, we would be like, well, I don't need to worry about myself because I can trust God. When racial injustice shows up, 
We can say, I don't need to worry about protecting myself because I can trust God. When, when political unrest shows up, we can say, well, I don't, need to, I don't need to worry about standing up for my own point of view because I can trust God. When the pandemic just doesn't end, I don't have to get mad or upset. I can trust God and say, God, maybe you have a plan in this. Maybe there's something you're trying to teach me in this. Because if I build my life on trusting God, then all of the stuff this last year would not have knocked me down. What about serving others? If I had built my life on serving others, if we had built our lives on serving others, this last year would have been awesome. I kid you not. Because just think about all the people this last year who needed something. Think of all the people this last year who were in a place of need or hurt or pain. If we had built our lives on serving others, if we had built our church on serving others, if we had built anything in our lives on serving others, then last year would have been a heyday. Look at all of the amazing ways we can serve others. And if we had built our lives on judging ourselves first, then this last year we would have survived social media. This last year, we wouldn't have pointed our fingers at that other person who was pointing their finger at you. This last year, you wouldn't have been judging that other person who's judging that other person who's judging you. This last year, you and I, if we had judged ourselves first, maybe we would have grown spiritually. This last year, these things would have saved us. Well, maybe. Because I tell you the truth, I tried to do these things last year. And I still felt knocked down. I still felt broken. I still felt heartbroken. I didn't feel like a victor this last year, even though I was trying to do these things. And maybe that was you. But I gotta let you know that Jesus is with you because Jesus went through the same things. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 27. I wanna put this up. He says, they spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Incidentally, if you've never made the connection before, the word crucify is the word from which we get the word excruciating. Anything that comes from the cross is the worst pain imaginable. And the word ex is the prefix in the ancient languages for from. And so excruciating means it's the pain that comes from the cross. They led him away to crucify him. Keep going. It says, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, which means It doesn't show up for whatever reason. It didn't show up on the screen. He cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Jesus did those things perfectly. He trusted his father, right? He built his life on serving others, right? And yet he went through this. The greatest storm imaginable. And from our perspective, it looks like he failed. It looks like he lost, right? He died. You see, the thing about God is that he knows the story is bigger. You can face your storm and you can feel like doing the right things isn't working for you. 
And you need to know that Jesus faced his storm. And doing the right things didn't work for him. Until a couple days later. Because let me show you this. It says, at that moment when he died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life, and it says this, they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Listen, there are lots of people who go through their storms and look like they fell. They look like they were conquered. It looks like they were lost. It looks like the storm was too much for them. But I'll tell you the truth. The storm is never too much for those people Jesus knows. Because Jesus is the one, when he dies, the, the, the curtain between you and God is torn away. That means everybody now has direct access to God. And God has direct access to everybody. The dividing curtain is gone. But beyond that, Jesus, when he dies, other people come to life. In his death, he saves others. You might say, well, if he can't save himself, why would he save us? No, in his death, he saved others. And then after his resurrection, they all come back into the town and people are like, what? Like, I'm telling you, it might look like you are going to fall in the storm, but don't you believe it, because the Jesus you follow is the Jesus who doesn't keep you out of the storm. He's the Jesus who saves you through it. Even if it defeats you, he can bring you back. And I'll tell you what, that's the king that we need. We don't need a king who protects us all the time. We don't need a king who prevents the hardship from hitting us all the time. We don't need the king who even helps us to stand up in the middle of the storm. We need the king who can bring us back after we've fallen. When Jesus finishes saying these words in Matthew 7, the people around him hadn't heard the story of the resurrection yet because it hadn't happened. But they knew something had gone on in what they had just heard. And this is how chapter 7 ends. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Do you sense Jesus' authority today? Do you sense his authority? Do you recognize that Jesus is the one who when he speaks... You act. And that's the thing that links you to him, which links you to his resurrection, which is your salvation. The final encouraging thought I want to give you today is that you and I can be saved through the storms by following Jesus. We don't get saved from the storms. We don't get saved in the storms. We get saved through the storms no matter what you face. If you build your life on what Jesus talks about, trusting God uh, above all other things, serving others, not yourself, judging yourself before you judge anything else. If you follow what Jesus has said just in the book of, of Matthew so far, the Sermon on the Mount, if you follow these things pragmatically, yeah, they work a lot. But more than that, more than that, 
even if the storm knocks you down, you're with a Savior who can lift you back up. That's what communion is about. Today we're going to celebrate communion together. And if you have the elements of communion with you, I encourage you to to get them ready. The way we're going to do it today, we're not going to move around the room like we've sometimes done it. The way we're going to do it today is we're going to recognize that the bread symbolizes Jesus' body broken for us. And so we've got crackers, cracked. And you're going to make a lot of noise when you open them. And it's going to sound, if you listen carefully, it's going to sound like a far off whip, someone getting injured a long way away, and it's just floating on the wind and making you hear it here. But this is bread that has been broken to remind us of Jesus' broken body for us. And we have a semblance of wine to remind us of the blood that he has shed for us. What we're going to do is we're going to sing a half of a song. And during that time, I want you to just spend, spend it in reflection, in quiet. Um, sing along with us if you know the words, but we're going to prepare our hearts for what it means to recognize Jesus who was on the cross for us. And then after he died, the curtain was torn. After he died, lives were restored. And after he rose again, he proved that it was all true. And we're going to spend some moments just there in the quietness of that space. At the end of the first verse or so of the song, we're going to have some quiet moments. And during that time, I invite you to partake of the communion. Eat some of the crackers, drink some of the juice, but do it with this attitude in your heart. Say, Jesus, all over again, once again, I take you into my life. I receive you. If you can't say today that Jesus is your king, then don't participate. It's just pretend for you. But if today you would say that Jesus is your king, then please do participate and say, Jesus, I take you into my life all over again, afresh and anew. And then we'll close out our time with the final half of that song. But as we prepare, let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.